dimensional, transforming, musical, linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Since our program is going to be a bit longer than usual today, I'll get right to the point, if that's okay with you. As you know from the title of today's podcast, we have Fraser Clark back with us in the salon today. I'm sure you'll all remember Fraser from way back in our 16th podcast when we heard his talk titled, Monkey's Trip, A Short History of the Human Species. Well, today we're in for an even more of a mind-bending ride because I'm going to play a recording of a talk that Fraser gave at Stanford University in California. I'll have more to say about this important talk at the end of the program, but I think I should let you know from the outset that I personally believe that this is the most important program we've podcast so far here in the Psychedelic Salon. The title of uh, Fraser's talk for this guest lecture appearance is Rave Culture and the End of the World as We Know It. And in this talk, you're going to hear one of the most concise explanations of the evolution from beat to hippie to zippy to raver that you're probably ever going to hear. In my humble opinion, uh, adopting a the philosophy of the rave culture, at, at least the way Fraser explains it in this talk, is perhaps our species' best hope for a sustainable, peaceful, and beautiful place to continue chugging along on our evolutionary path. So now, here is Fraser Clark being introduced as the guest lecturer at Stanford University. Good morning. It looks like most of my class is here. This is Social Dance 3, in case you're just joining us, about social dance phenomenon. The subject of today's talk uh, is a request from some of you, because last quarter I gave a talk called Zen and the Art of Waltzing, and I gave a version of that this morning just now that was about 50% longer. And that's about the enhancement of receptivity into multidimensional experiences and the role uh, that dancing plays in it. And in that talk, I mentioned trans states and I mentioned rave culture uh, as one aspect of trans dancing. And to no surprise, many of you asked to hear more about rave culture and more about that phenomenon. And since our subject is social dance forms of North America, and this certainly is one and a very current one, I thought, okay, we could do that. But I wanted to find someone who was more qualified than myself to talk about it. So I started a search, and the criterion were rather daunting, at, at least. I started uh, looking for someone who was not just a diehard raver, but someone who had actually produced raves as well. Uh, and also beyond the San Francisco area, because here the rave scene is only about five years old, I wanted to find somebody who's been a part of this version of the phenomenon since its beginning, which would mean that he or she would probably be English uh, since the current version of rave culture began in England. And uh, that wouldn't quite do it either because one of the most interesting aspects of rave culture is that San Francisco has become a world center in a uh, more 
enlightened, so to speak, uh, version of the rave community, and some people are moving here for specific for that purpose. So I guess it would have to be a Brit who was there from the beginning who put on raves but who moved here because it was here and out. And still that wasn't enough because I didn't want to have somebody sit down in this chair for an hour and say, uh, gee, um, raving's really cool, and that'd be it. But I would want somebody who's really given it a lot of thought and who has developed a philosophical base for it, who could philosophize on the subject as well. And finally, a visiting lecturer is not a teacher. It's not someone to come in and hand us an answer, but I think uh, should give us a broader spectrum of things to think about, food for thought. So ideally, a speaker should be controversial as well. So I know only one person in the world who fits all of these criterion. And if anyone here knows Fraser Clark, you know that he fits the bill. English, born in Scotland, actually, a seasoned veteran of the rave scene. And he's been uh, attending and producing raves since the beginning. Last summer, for instance, he produced the Grand Canyon Mega Rave that you may have read about in Newsweek last summer. He started the Megatripolis Rave Club in London, which is still going on. He's published three magazines on alternative lifestyles and rave culture. He produces rave music recordings, um, albums, compilations, house mixes, including a collaboration with Timothy Leary on his own record company. And as far as being a raving philosopher, uh, Frazier founded the Zippy Movement, that's the Zen-inspired pranoyaks who dwell mostly on the Internet. Pranoya, by the way, is the lurking suspicion that someone is conspiring for your benefit. Uh, back when I was young, we called this benign paranoia. Same kind of thing. And uh, the zippy phenomenon uh, following has become quite sizable on the Internet. And as far as controversial goes, uh, Frazier not only participates in a controversial lifestyle, but he is also controversial within the rave community itself. And if any of you uh, have been subscribing to SF Raves, the rather large bulletin board mailing list that I think has about 6,000 subscribers of the San Francisco rave scene, you know that about half of the posts agree with what Ray, uh, Fraser says and about half don't. Uh, and I admire that in Fraser. So, uh, without uh, further details except for one, this uh, talk will be broken down in two parts. For this class period, it will be Fraser's talk. And then at about lunchtime, at about noon, I encourage you to stay for an open session, question and answers. And from past experiences, that's when it really gets interesting, even more so. So, here he is, Fraser Clark. This is not my normal time for uh, talking about rape culture or the end of the world at 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but uh, I stayed up all night. It's the only way I could handle it. Uh, I agree with everything Richard said, except that I would never say that raves are cool. In fact, they're very hot experiences. I think that's one of the key things about it. Uh, one of my main uh, concepts I'm going to put across today is that... Uh, Rave is hippie part two, or rather hippie the conclusion. Uh, and when hippie burst upon the scene in the 60s, the immediate fashion before that was cool. In fact, that's the last time I've heard the word used until currently. 
Everybody was cool. Everybody stood around, posed and poised in the perfect positions, very, very much like in a way you have now. And then Hippie burst upon the scene. Hippie came crashing through the door, fell flat on his face, got up, mumbled something mystical, tripped over something else, spilled something. He was hot. He was uh, so hot for life that he was continually messing up and so on. We now have the negative, looking back through history, with the negative aspect of that. But at the time, and for about six years, it was a very exciting time to live in. And um, I was talking to Richard today on the drive-in. He was saying that students about four years younger than yourselves are very interested in that time. In America and England, this has happened about, started happening about five years ago. Young people started to come up to me and say, you lived through the hippie times? You were a hippie? God, I wish I was, uh, I wish I'd lived then. You know, it's so boring now. And my, me- my message to you is that the hippie, I call it zippy now, and I'll tell you why, is coming back much bigger than it ever was in the hippie times. And it's already well on its way in England, and I see signs of it all over San Francisco. We are heading for a massive period of social change and excitement. So you haven't missed it. <laughs> Not at all, and it won't be missing you. Okay. Um, so as I said, my, my credentials, I suppose, I, I, um, I, I, as a young man, I studied psychology. I hoped it would tell me, help me to understand more about myself and the world I lived in. I took an honours degree in psychology in 1965. I don't think it told me much about myself or the world I lived in. I knew a little bit more about white rats than I wanted to know. And I was really quite shocked by what they did to those poor creatures. I mean, I really, I'm very critical of the current society we live in, and I have been since then, and I was very critical of psychology too. I, I, remained, I, I lived through the whole, hippie, the whole hippie fashion cycle, which began to die out about 1972. I didn't die out. I had found, found the way I wanted to be, and I continued to be a hippie, and I traveled all around the world looking for a culture that would be kind of mature enough to say that when it contacted or was contacted by Western culture would say, would be wise enough to say, well, we want this and we'll take that and we don't like mind modem, but we don't want your Coca-Cola and we don't want this. And, you know, it would be, I finally realized that wasn't the case, that um, it seems like every culture has to go through materialism before it can come out the other side of it. So I then came back to the West to continue uh, trying to change things, but from within the belly of the beast. When the, so I lived through the whole hippie times, which, and one of my concepts is that rave is hippie part two, hippie the conclusion. I was in London when the rave scene exploded in Manchester and, the, and in London. Uh, I was probably the first person over 25 to get involved in the scene. I was at massive raves with 25,000 people, and I was probably the only person over 25. So if you accept that rave is hippie part two, then I must be some kind of world, world authority in, on this growing culture. Uh, I'd like to do a quick hands-up check. How many people here have been to a rave? Oh, maybe one in 20, you say? How many people have a modem? About this, are they the same people, I wonder? Oh, that's interesting. How many people have been to Rave and have a modem? About half. Okay, all right. That's interesting. Uh, I would think that anybody intelligent and young today would have to be interested in what Rave is about. I mean, it's controversial, but clearly something is happening 
around there and that's always a sign that something's happening. Usually, quite often there's bad signs, usually bad signs that are a sign that something good is happening behind all that. Okay, now, this is not going to be a rational discussion because I could literally talk for seven days a night on rave culture. In fact, I've been doing it for seven years and I could go on forever. So I've tried to squeeze it all into a 50-minute talk, which is totally impossible. I mean, we're not just talking about a new dance style or anything. It's a, a lot more than that. So I'm going to refer to this a little more than I like to do. That's A, because it's 11 o'clock in the morning and my mind is not quite crackling the way it usually does. And also because I really want to try and cover quite a few areas. Okay, now, the reason I became a, a hippie in the 60s, I think the reason anyone became a hippie in the 60s was the feeling that when we looked as young people at the world we were living in, there were two competing world systems, capitalism, communism, whatever you want to call it. It seemed to the hippie, and it seemed to me at the time, that both of these cultures, both of these systems were actually bad for people, user-unfriendly both to the, the rulers and to the ruled. You know, I mean, uh, and so we are basically saying when you became a hippie, a plague in both their houses, we think there's a more cooperative way of living and uh, we don't want anything to do with either of you. Uh, now, the fact that there were one, so my attitude today is that one going, one to go. That is my attitude. Uh, I also think it's quite, uh, there's a sense of urgency because with one of them going, communism, the gap and the sort of potential for change that could happen on the planet with one of them going, if, if, if the competitive system that, that, is, that I think is a real danger to us at the moment is not changed, then that is going to inherit the gap. It's going to fill the gap with competition. And I think that's the last thing the planet needs right now. Now, ever since I've been criticizing both of those systems, the main thing I always hear is, well, who are you? How can you criticize a system that is so rich in achievement, that's sending, uh, you know, rockets to the moon and all the rest of it? How can you criticize that? How could one person or a few dropouts criticize an entire system? I think since the collapse of the Soviet system, it's now a bit easier to see how an entire system could be there in place for a very long time, and yet actually, as most people will now agree, it was probably the net result of it on people was actually probably overall negative. They would have been better off without that system. I think we can see that where communism is involved. Why is it so outrageous to think that this system could have its priorities completely wrong and actually be doing more harm than good both to the people at the top and the people underneath? I put it to you that that is at least a possibility. I mean, it mustn't be fooled by the fact that there's only two competing system, therefore if one is wrong, the other one must be right. I don't think that follows in the slightest, you know. Uh, I'm trying to put, this is all about rave culture, believe me, but we're trying to put it in a context. It's not just a new dance. Okay. Uh, one other argument we have to look at is without competition, we would never have got to this technologically advanced stage that we're in. Some people seem to think that competition was a necessary step towards it. I don't personally believe that. 
I think uh, I've seen people cooperating and, and more new, new and creative and original ideas coming out of that. In fact, Silicon Valley around here might just be an example of that. But luckily we don't have to agree whether, whether this past competitive stage was necessary to get here or not. So what we can agree about, I think, is that whether competition was necessary to get to here or not, it is definitely not necessary now on a very small planet which is being very rapidly filled and polluted and just filled on every level from electromagnetic, the whole thing. If we go on competing one, one monopoly against another and all the rest of it, the planet is doomed. So we can see the danger of competition. It's not just an ecological thing either. Don't be fooled into thinking it's just a green issue. I think a society that's based so deeply in competition that we don't even realize it. So, I mean, as a psychologist, I watch parents with young people and and often you hear them saying things like, what's your favorite color? Favorite color? We have to rank colors in some kind of competitive way. Red is better than blue. I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's a very, very deep, thing we have about competition. It's been in there since we were two, three year old. What's your favorite food? What's your favorite this? Who's your favorite uncle? It's all this favorite. It's ranking. It's competing all the time. And we're competing with our brothers and all the rest of it. And somehow, I think the planet in the very, very few years, short years ahead, has to somehow, the culture has to change from a competitive one to a cooperative one. And I think red culture is exactly in that place. We now have, since, since Oklahoma and the Unabomber, I think it's becoming more clear that this system, this current competitive system, is so competitive that it's beginning to tear itself apart. From the right wing, from the left wing, people are clearly dissatisfied with it. They give different interpretations to it, but it's beginning to tear itself apart. And it's a very, I mean, besides increasing security because of this, I think we also have to look at why, what drives somebody so crazy. I mean, either you say the human species just is crazy, or you have to say, well, something is driving these people crazy. Why would somebody walk into a supermarket and start blowing people away? Why? What drove them crazy? What in society, what in our culture is driving people to the edge? I mean, to some extent, everybody feels some of the pressure of the system. The weaker ones, or maybe the more open-minded ones, get driven more idealistic ones get driven. I'm not trying to justify terrorism, but we have to look at why people are driven to that. And it's competition, basically. You know, Karl Marx once predicted that capitalism would have to fall, and that when it did, the capitalists would compete to sell the rope to the victors to hang them with. (laughs) And there are definitely signs of that today. You know, I mean, it seems like... the. We cannot, the system, even though we see what's going wrong, we can't stop it. Nobody seems to be in charge. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, by the way. I don't think there's a cabal of trilateral commissioners up there at the top controlling it. I think they think, I think they're trying to, just like everybody else is trying to. But I think the system, the culture itself is what's driving, and, and there's no individual can actually do something about it, which is the problem. Okay, what the world needs today is a new cooperative culture. Ideally, we need to see the appearance of a cooperative meme. A meme is like a cultural virus that you see it on TV or you see it through the media and you begin to move in that direction. So we need a cooperative meme that has to rapidly spread across the planet very quickly and very quickly become the dominant cultural meme. You know, uh, In a way, we have to make that, that cooperative attitude a new 
lifestyle has to become fashionable. Now, every time I use the word fashionable in America, I can see that it's making the wrong connotations. In the 60s, you see, I don't care. In the 60s, I don't care if somebody started meditating or dancing because they read about it in a magazine. As long as they start meditating or dancing, I don't care why they started. The point is to get people to that point. And that's where fashion and that's where the zippy thing, when we came up with it quite consciously, we aimed it at the media and we wanted to spread a new message quickly. It's the quickest way to change the maximum number of people in the minimum amount of time. Am I talking too fast, by the way, with my Scottish accent? Are you all managing to follow? Yeah? Okay. Uh, there are so many things that need changing and many, many people are doing good selfless work. The trouble is that this one's saving the robins, that one's saving the whales, this one's trying to cut down this one. There's, it seems in one level there's more fragmentation because there are so many good people doing so many separate, separated causes. Somehow we have to bring everybody together into one cultural thing which is about an overall paradigm shift in the culture. And if we could do that, if somehow all good people could somehow be on the same side on some issue, and I think that's a cultural thing, and I think rave culture offers a way to do that. So somehow we have to get to one single overall paradigm shift. And if, if society can make that jump, then all the other issues will just automatically solve themselves. The robins will be saved in Mill Valley, and all these other things will happen if we can change at the centre. Now, if the human species really is capable of adapting to the present crisis, then there should already at this late stage be a sign of a new cultural meme, a new cultural movement happening within the overall culture. It should already be possible to see that if, if we really are going to change in time. And I think you can begin to see now where I'm going. Um, it should be... Um, not just here, but it should be spreading widely and rapidly in all the Western democracies. Rave culture is doing that. It should certainly involve youth. It would almost certainly have its own new style of music and its own new form of dancing, as every great social movement does. So these, if we look for some real change happening, then these are the things we should be looking for. It should also, in my opinion, be linked with a love of nature, since so much of the problem is ecological, so it should be a new youth phenomenon, it should be taking people out to the countryside, it shouldn't be only doing it within clubs. Uh, it should be encouraging, encouraging large number of people gathering together in large numbers away from the city. Now, if you look for any sign of it in mainstream culture here in America, I don't think you'll find it. Beavis and Mutt Brain, what is he called? They, they still seem to rule Generation X, cynicism, apathy. This seems to be the established late punk youth culture that, that's being presented in the mainstream. Totally negative stuff and totally bad for everyone, I'm quite certain. The punk thing, which is now, which is really dead in England, I mean, when the rave thing hit England, it was immediately clear to me that that was the end of the punk thing. And one of our phrases in England was, to, to, the, to the punks, if there's any here, was, why is everybody wearing black? Haven't you heard the funerals being cancelled? But some of them still haven't heard it. Anyway, uh, the, be the best that punk has to offer, and I'm not here to knock it, is despite the best it has to offer, really all it's doing is refusing to be part of the overall corruption and the materialism, but refusing to be part of it 
He's not going to change anything. Certainly not in time. So, rave culture, exploding through all the Western democracies, every single one of them, and quite a few others, and it shows every sign of capturing America over the next year or two, I would say, as the, as the, the dominant cultural meme. It will replace the kind of late punk grunge thing which is current at the moment. One of the exciting things about rave culture is that there are no stars. The rave scene has now been going in England for eight years, and I don't think there's one DJ name who's sort of universally known anywhere. Now, if you think of rock and roll, within eight years of rock and roll beginning, there were established superstars whose names are still known today. This is not happening within rave culture. And that's a very, very healthy thing. If you remember that it's the cooperative side of it that I think is the most important. Uh, in England now, where the economic collapse, which I think is happening in the Western system, I actually think the Western system is on its knees, although it's very hard to quite see it over here. But in England, it's much more clear that the economic collapse has gone quite far. And people in the rave scene there are now f they're being forced to cooperate. System collapse is good for you because it forces everyone to cooperate. If you want to put on a party, somebody's got the records, somebody knows a venue, this one can find a generator. Everybody's forced to chip in what they have. The, the, the yuppie myth of uh, somehow one person having all the technology and able to do it all himself is not nearly so possible there. And so it's forcing cooperation on people a lot. In England, they call it a depression. England and Europe are supposed to be in rather a long-term depression, but it's, I think it's important to realize that the word depression is what the people at the top, the people who think they have something to lose, they're depressed. But my, um, in England now you'll meet thousands of young people who really would accept that they're never going to have a proper job ever. I mean, it's just gone beyond that. The system cannot contain those kind of people anymore. So they're never going to have a proper job. And yet, I've never seen such an outbreak of creativity, even in the hippie times. So I'm a bit of an expert on that. But I've never seen such creativity as I see in England now when I left. I've been away six months now. But everybody's running around producing their own little magazine, organizing this social protest, putting on parties, exhibition, painting. They're all really busy. They've got a very small stipend from the government because they have a welfare state there. So everybody's able to, if they, live, if they live on health foods and so on, they can live quite healthily. And they're being very, very creative. It's like, as the system lets go, somehow people's creativity, the, pe the people's creativity comes out. Their imagination and their creativity are, are freed in some way. Now, I said before that after university I spent a lot of time traveling the planet looking for a culture which would take the best. That didn't work. After about two decades, I realized that materialism is a stage which you have to pass through before you can reject it. And so I came back to work here. What we did was we sat down and we analyzed what the sum total of the problems were. And they're pretty much like I've outlined, although we went into a lot more detail. The second thing we then tried to work out was where the, mo the most hope for a change could appear. And we decided it was within youth culture. That was the freest, the least government controlled, if you like. There's also where you can clearly find the most idealism, the most energy, the most commitment. 
the least commitment to the current competitive culture. Then we calculated just what the new average lifestyle should be to be adopted and spread very quickly across the planet in order to change things. What would that new lifestyle be? And then let's try and make it fashionable. Remembering fashionable could be good or bad. I don't care why somebody starts doing something if he does it because it's fashionable, as long as he starts meditating, dancing, or doing the other things, I don't care whether fashion made him do it. In fact, we have to use fashion if we want to change a lot of people in a very quick time. So we worked out what that new lifestyle should be, which was the zippy, basically. And we set out to try and make that fashionable through the media and so on. Now, it's not very hard to work out. We need a new lifestyle to rapidly become fashionable that makes young people want to First of all, lower their consumption levels and their expectations. I mean, start lowering your consumption levels anyway because they are going to be lower over the next decade or so, the way the present system is going. So you might as well prepare for it now. Uh, he also wants to make cooperation and gentleness fashionable again. Uh, also wants to make large gatherings in the open air fashionable again. And it also should encourage everybody to work together both with each other and with others who are not part of the movement. We don't want a confrontational attitude since that will just spread the problem further. Now the zippy, I better give a definition of zippy. A zippy is someone, basically we talk about two hemispheres of the brain, Richard referred to this. I call the, the left brain the, 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 the techno person hemisphere and that's to do with long term planning, group commitment, budgeting properly, all the things that you, you learn in business school. The other hemisphere is we call the hippies, the hippie hemisphere. And basically a zippy is trying to harmonize his two hemispheres, both in his own personal life, first of all, not first of all, but that's one part of it. The other part is trying to harmonize the hemispheres of his planet between techno and organic. Somehow we have to get to a prop, back to a proper balance between these two things. And that's what the Zippy is. Notice that Zippy is not somebody who's achieved this. A Zippy is somebody who's noticed and recognized the imbalance and is working towards creating that balance in himself and then in his planet. Uh, so there we were with our, our Zippy uh, philosophy. I was in, putting out a magazine at that time called the Encyclopedia Psychedelica. And I was predicting a mass outbreak of consciousness raising among the youth. And boom, just as we were printing that, the acid house party scene, now called the rave scene, burst through my door. Well, let me back up a little bit and, and put this again in some context. The reason so many people became hippies, including me in the 60s, there were, there were three components to it. There was a political component, there was an ecological component and there was a, a personal spiritual component. The political co component I've kind of touched on and that was basically that we saw politics, the old competitive politics as just that, competitive and destructive. You know, the, the opposition is its very duty is to oppose. I mean, maybe it worked 300 years ago, but it's not. It's definitely not the system we need today. So hippies were saying a plague and all that. We don't want anything to do with that kind of competitive system. The ecological component was this. When, if you remember, Tim Leary advised everybody to turn on, tune in, and drop out. Drop out of the sick system, which was becoming a threat to the planet. That was basically the point. So... When you made the decision, as I did in 1965, after I took my honours degree in psychology, 
to, to become a hippie. Really, what, it was a brave personal decision to basically reduce my own personal level of consumption by about 70%. I decided I won't have a fancy sports car. I won't have my own private motor launch. I won't, I'll give up that lifestyle. I'll become a traveler. I'll see the world. I'll write Zen poetry. I'll live on beaches and I'll read fine literature and I'll go for that. I don't, I'll lower my consumption level by about 70%. And that's what I've done ever since, basically. Uh, that was what the planet needed, and that's what the hippie opted for. Now, I've lived that life ever since, until I became a zippy, basically, in the, in the mid-80s. And I had to invent the zippy concept, really, to kind of explain to myself who I was and who my friends were and why. Now, I put it to you that if everybody at that time in the 60s who, who were armed with the same information about the planet had made the same decision, if everybody had voluntarily opted to reduce their consumption level and their expectations, we would now be living on a very beautiful, harmoniously developed planet with none of these problems we have now. But people didn't have the courage, and so now I think they're going to have to live through the objective result of, of, of they are not making those decisions then. They're now, I think, being forced to lower their consumption level. It's not so clear here. But it's coming, and it's very clear in Europe and a lot of the West. Now, the personal spiritual component brings us directly to the rave. The hippie conclusion was that mankind, that Western man, was basically stuck in his head and that the only chance for the planet, because the Western system was a threat to the planet, the only chance for the planet was that was the, invent- the, the discovery, or more likely the rediscovery, of some kind of technique or some kind of technology which would one by one, through all the people in the West, individually, one by one, put them through a process where they got out of their heads and back into their heart and their body. In other words, as, as George Gurdjieff, a great teacher in the early 20th century, said, he called, it, he called mankind three-brain beings. We have a, an intellectual brain, an emotional brain, and a physical moving brain. And these brains are equal in every way. One is not more important than the other, but they should work in harmony, all three together, as a team, cooperating. Now, that was the hippie analysis of what would have to happen in the West. We would need some kind of strategy, some kind of technology, some kind of technique to enable everybody to get this balance again. Today, every high street in Britain is offering just such a commodity. Rave, non-stop, rhythmic, African-style, shamanic dance music, which is taking an entire generation out of their heads and back into their hearts and their bodies. So that is actually happening to hundreds of thousands of young people all across Europe, and it's now spreading into America. So, this is, um, this is Kate, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be talking about trans states, so I thought it would be a good idea if uh, we had an actual uh, example of it. Young people dance like this for hours on end. I'll, I'll be coming to that very... So anyway, there I was. I was editing the, and publishing the encyclopedia and, and predicting a, a mass consciousness-raising outbreak among young people when suddenly... Uh, these two young guys, Scooby Doobies they were called, 
they were a design team and they'd found the, the, the magazine I was doing, which was kind of a, I don't know what you'd call it, an idealistic, small circulation, hippie-oriented magazine. And they found that and they thought that was the message they wanted. And they were ravers. They explained to me they were ravers. And they came into my office and they were dressed very colorfully, totally unlike the punk thing that was totally fashionable then. They had no rings to their noses, none of this stuff. They were very colourfully dressed and they explained to me that they were going to acid house parties and they were raving all night. And they got me to go into my very first, as they were called then, acid house party, now called raves. And as soon as I saw uh, my first acid house party, I knew this was the consciousness raising movement, the beginning of this very thing that I was predicting and praying for, really. My first uh, rave I went to was put on by Tony Colston Hater, who, who ran a posse called Sunrise, and he was the acid house king of that time when rave burst out in England. This is 1987, 1988. So he was on the TV, he was being interviewed. He was the, the famous acid house king. There was 20,000 kids in a field, and they were going for it all night. That was the very first one I went to. Um, I remember him getting up, uh, interrupting the music, which is quite rare, and announcing that um, he said, they've hit us with 12 injunctions to stop this, but they haven't managed to stop it. So I also picked up that this was a, there was a strong energy behind this. It was young people determined on doing what they wanted to do, as long as they didn't harm anyone else, and they were not... And it, there was an element of rebelliousness... They've hit us with 12 injunctions and they haven't managed to stop us. So I thought, I paid attention. Um, what did it look like? They had, um, it was a massive field with 20,000 people dancing it. They had a big dipper. They had a Ferris wheel. They had stalls selling champagne, hot dog stands all the way around this field. My first impression was this should be surrounded by a massive Woodstock hippie festival with the rave in the middle. Perfect. But there were differences, and um, I don't want to... I mean, this is some of this is my theory. Not every raver would necessarily agree with what I'm saying. In fact, if you stay for the question and answer, you'll probably hear a few objections. But So here are some of the differences between raves and, and the hippie thing. The main thing to notice is that these ravers were yuppies. I remember that very first rave, I sat down with a, a group of young people, and this girl was saying to me, isn't it great? You work really hard all weekend, all week, and then you rave really hard all weekend. So she was quite happy. She accepted the whole competitive system. She was doing quite well within it. She was adding raving at the weekend as her weekend thing. She was not trying to change society. The, um, these were yuppies. They were smart. They were intelligent. They were savvy. And they were entrepreneurial. If you think of Tony Colson Hero, this, this was 20,000 kids. They were paying about Forty dollars to work it out. He was taking eight hundred thousand dollars in one night in a big open field just outside London. The take was eight hundred thousand dollars. So this was not a hippie-inspired thing. This was young, yuppie, entrepreneurial-based. Now, if you probably all know about Mrs. Thatcher, and you've probably got mixed opinions, but Mrs. Thatcher's main call was for a revival in England of the entrepreneurial spirit. If she had really meant that, 
then she would have been behind the whole the whole raver thing, and it would now be Britain's greatest export to the world. But somehow she didn't. She wasn't. She tried to stamp it out. In fact, if she'd supported it, it would now be Britain's greatest cultural export. Um, but what, what it boiled down to was Mrs. Thatcher's message was actually puritanical. It was mean-spirited. She was protecting her own conservative supporting industrial barons and the whole status quo. She wasn't really encouraging the entrepreneurial spirit when it got right down to people just doing it. And so when these kids, these yuppies who were part of the system up till then saw the full power of the state turned against them, for what? For dancing or for organizing it and then charging somebody to go into it? Totally entrepreneurial. They were shocked and they began to question the system. And they began to be radicalized. And that is the history of, of the rave scene ever since. That if she had gone along with it, I think now it would be a very, con- possibly it would be a very controllable new kind of entertainment. But she didn't. She fought it. And she, and it was radicalized and now it's quite, there's quite a large element of social protest or desire for social change within it at its base. Another difference with, with raves is that the music is louder than in the hippie times and it carried everywhere. I noticed that this first rave and ever since, the, because the music's much louder, it carries, it carried across the whole field. So people would leave the dance floor maybe to go and get a glass of champagne or whatever and they'd be dancing all the way over to the... And they'd be standing at the champagne stall and they'd still be dancing. Unlike a hippie thing where the band would be over here and you'd come over here to be quiet and you'd you know, you'd choose the music when you wanted it, more of a sort of spectator thing. This was more everybody felt involved in it. They wanted the music louder so that everybody was getting the same beat at the same time. That was part of the, the atmosphere they wanted. If you look at old footage of Woodstock and so on, you'll see that most people, there's probably two or three girls up near the front of the camera, which is why the camera was there filming them. Everybody else is sitting about in groups, puffing or just chatting. Dancing wasn't really a big thing with the hippies. I mean, it wasn't, I danced sometimes and I really got into it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a dance culture. Uh, as, as the rave scene is definitely a dance-based culture. Dance is not some optional thing that you do. You don't go to a, you don't, when you, I'll talk more specifically about what a rave is like as opposed to a party, but when you go to a, a rave, you don't really sit about and have a little drinky poo and then a little dance and then you chat up the girl you've met. It's not like that at all. It's a different kind of thing. Uh, the other big difference was when I first went to these acid house parties, they were very clear that they were not hippies. They were very insistent that this was their thing. It was nothing to do with hippies. And I, I grant that. This was, this rave is not an invention of old hippie conspirators like me. This, this really did kick off from among the youth itself. And I think that's a big strength of it. But nevertheless, from a zippy point of view, what they were doing was activating their, their hippie hemisphere. That's what was, was happening. And so I was immediately interested in it. So, is a rave just a party? No. It's definitely not just a party. Because it depends on what we mean by a party. I think we have to define what a party is. To me, a party seems to belong to the industrial age when we all worked very hard, 
five days a week and then we all got off our faces on Friday and Saturday. And that's what a party meant. It was kind of a way of controlling the industrialized worker ants to let them let off steam on Fridays and Saturdays. Now we've moved to a different kind of culture altogether and we have to redefine party altogether. But by party most people think of alcohol. They think of picking up a member of the opposite or the same sex. Maybe getting off your face. Dancing a little bit. Chatting a little bit. Drinking a little or a lot. None of these items would really happen at a proper rave. First of all, alcohol is not the main lubricant. A whole generation is now appearing where alcohol is not fashionable. In fact, it is unfashionable. And if nothing else was true about rave culture than the fact that it had, that it's very rapidly producing a whole generation who are against alcohol, who are really not into it. If that was the only thing rave culture had achieved, I would still be giving it my total vote of confidence because I would never have believed that in my lifetime I would see alcohol going out of fashion but it is there's a whole generation in England now who just don't drink just doesn't occur to them to drink there's smart drinks or other other drugs they use but alcohol is gone second thing I'd like, like to say about it is that raving is not a new dance step it's not a dance step at all in fact there are no steps to raving nor do you do it with a partner. You come to a rave and there's a dance floor and there's some seats there and you just get out there and you go for it, as Kate was doing there. There are no, no partner. You don't have to go up to a girl and say, would you like a dance? None of that. You just, everybody gets out there on their own or in groups and they just go for it. And the great thing about that, because there are no steps, everybody can only be themselves somehow. I mean, I, Almost as much as raving, I like sitting at the edge of a, a rave dance floor watching people raving. Everybody has a story. Here's some fat girl and she's doing it this way and here's some young black guy and he's got his style and somehow, because there are no steps, you can read their story. There is no way to hide when you're out on a dance floor. You, whatever you do, that's you. There's no way to hide it. With steps, you can pretend you're John Travolta or do all sorts of things, but when there are no steps, there is no, no place to hide. And so it's, it's very open, it's very sharing, and it's very caring as well. Um, third thing is that the beat is faster. And also that each, and here's where the DJ comes in, each record is mixed so that the music ideally should never stops. You have a wall of sound that continues all through the night. So... And it lifts you higher and then it takes you down and it lifts you again and it keeps going. There is no space between the tracks where you can stop and say thank you for the dance and take the girl back or whatever. Those days are gone, you know. <laughs> uh, the DJ also, he's present. It's not like um, disco in a sense. The DJ is there and he, he, he watches the mood. A good DJ watches the mood and knows when to take people a little higher, a little faster, when to lower them, take them slower down again, maybe a little bit of ambient in the middle where the, the rhythm is stopped and people are just doing this, like waving like trees and then picking it up again with the bass drum and lifting it to a new height. I called, when at the first time I saw this, I realized he was the techno shaman because of his um, ability to lead the crowd mood. I, I used this word techno shaman and that has become... That's a phrase which is stuck and you read about it a lot these days. 
So I said before, you don't just have a little drinky and then a little dance with some girl you've met. Nothing like that. People dance to rave music for hours. It is shamanic, tribal, African-style dancing for hour after hour until your mind is stilled, your conditioning removed. It's very close to to, uh, brainwashing, in fact, the insistent, repetitive use of, of rhythm and of light. It could be used negatively. Luckily, the rave culture has grabbed the techniques because they're scientific. This is shamanic technology. It's ancient and it's modern. And young people have grabbed this technology and they're using it to produce positive change. You could use the same technology and put out negative messages. This is why it's so important with raves that the, that the imagery surrounding a rave is positive because you, really you're, you're opening people's minds. You're removing their conditioning, their expectations about what life should be and what they should be. They're more open to new, taking new impressions. It's very important that those impressions are positive. And Megatropolis, which is the club I mostly have run, we, I don't allow any negative images in there at all, visual or otherwise. No negative image. I know I'm very aware that art, artists say that true art is a balance of light and darkness. My viewpoint is we get the dark stuff six days a week. One day a week we should have all positive imagery and then we're still not even getting the balance over a week. So you don't see any, you know, nice stuck in eyeballs or skulls or any of that stuff at any of my raves. It all must be inspiring, positive, healthy imagery. Yeah, please, if you ha- I'd intend it to be over by now, but we'll get ages to go. So if anybody needs to leave, please do so. I'll stop in about ten minutes, and um, we'll, we'll move into the question and answer phase if, if people want to do that. So I'll just, I'll just talk through people leaving. and um, Okay, a little bit of history of, of house music and where it all began. It began in... Most people will, you can read, you can read this in magazines and books really, you don't need me to tell you this, but it began in Chicago with a new kind of way of playing with the music. Why it was called Acid House, they claim is they used to put acid on some of the tracks to burn them to create new impressions or there are various theories. I don't know, myself I think acid was involved, LSD was involved in what would you say if people started calling it acid music? You'd probably say, no, no, it means, um, you know, burning the record. <laughs> then it, it was then picked up in, in London and in Ibiza, which is a, an island uh, in the Mediterranean, famous for its clubbing and also a famous hippie center, interestingly enough. I spent a lot of time in Ibiza in the 60s. It was, it was kind, of the Cal, kind of the San Francisco of, of, the, of Europe. Uh, and then Acid House Parties hit London. One of the very early clubs was called Shum, run by a man called Danny Rampling, and he was pretty famous for a couple of years, but I think he missed the boat. When the, when the rave scene began to become more of a social movement, some of the early rave organizers, who were really just yuppies and really only wanted to be little rock stars, I think. They wanted to be pop stars and they didn't have a big enough ambition and basically the whole scene has moved beyond some of those early yuppies who who started it all. Tony Colson Hater, who was the Acid House King, I haven't heard of him for a couple of years and yet he was world famous at the time. So as it became a social movement and picked up political steam and so on, a lot of those early yuppie types disappeared from the scene. They probably still go to little clubs and they play their their original kind of music, but they are not crucial to the scene anymore. 
quite a key element in the whole development was when the ravers crossed in England, this is, they crossed over with the New Age travellers. I don't know how much you people know about this, but the New Age travellers at that time lived in their own trucks and they used to give their own festivals in the summer. They'd all come together in the open air on common land. And they began to get involved in the rave scene because when Mrs. Thatcher cracked down on holding it in warehouses and all the rest of it, people started linking up with the New Age travellers because they knew where the good fields were and they knew how to to do, you know, organise festivals in the country. And so you began to get a crossover between the hippie and the rave cultures and that produced what is really the most powerful moving part of it today. Uh, the UK government has passed so many laws. I suppose you all know about the Criminal Justice Act. They've been trying to stamp out the whole rave culture for the last few years for totally the wrong reasons that I've said. But we have to ask ourselves, why are they tra- trying so hard? Why, why was Mrs. Thatcher and John Major now, why are they passing these massive bills? That, I mean, this bill actually allows if more than 10 people get together with the intention of having a party with insistent rhythmic repetition of I mean they've even had a political committee, a parliamentary committee to define what rave music is why? why are they bothering to do all this? they obviously see a power in this thing Okay, that's pretty much all I want to say except that I'm going to read a thing called the ideal rave which will give you an idea and it's a little bit more inspirational as a thing to end up on and then we'll move in straight into question and answers, if that's okay, if you have any questions. Or statements, you don't have to ask questions, for God's sake. Okay, the ideal rave. This is slightly poetic and slightly uh, prosaic. I've put in some facts as well. The ideal rave should be out in the open air and should begin around sunset. This rarely happens, but it's the ideal. People should start drifting in as the sun goes down. They'd be checking out the venue, finding their spot where they can leave their things. Maybe they'd have a tent with them. They'd be hanging up their flags so their friends can find them, you know. And they'd be having some food and that kind of thing. By now the music has started, but it's slow and it's drifty and only occasionally rhythmic at this stage in the evening. People wander around, greeting and meeting each other, settling in, checking out what other distractions are available. These distractions could include massage, body and face painting, stalls with social, political, ecological and personal spiritual activities. We could have brain machines, we could have food, smart drinks, we could have modem video link-ups with other clubs on the planet at that time, and so on. Anything really that's inspiring, consciousness raising or positive anything. The great thing about rave culture is it's like the glue that can help all the other little movements and groups and strategies. It's a way for for them all to come together, party together and and meet each other and become more of a unified movement. You know, seeking that one paradigm shift after which all the little things will be resolved. So that's what rave culture can say. Occasionally people will hit the dance floor and loosen themselves up with some dancing. But dancing, dancing at this early stage helps to get the blood flowing around your veins and generally loosens people up, helps them to mix, drop their social barriers. Gradually over the night the music gets faster and more and more people hit the dance floor. By just after midnight the place is starting to get as packed as it's going to be. This is different with indoor raves where most people probably arrive after midnight. 
My first answer is party. There were 20,000 kids going for it by 2 a.m. Massive energy. Everybody, 20,000 people all dancing to that same rhythm. We're now participating in a tribal gathering love dance to absolutely non-stop shamanic rhythmic drum rolls and electronic bleeps that slightly unhinge the mind. Where am I? Who am I? Gradually the group mind becomes more dominant. It becomes, who are we? I'm part of something. I'm part of something that's actually bigger than myself. I'm one of the people. These are my people. This is us. Jack Attali, in The Political Economy of Music, said, Music is prophecy. Its styles are ahead of the rest of society because it explores much faster than material reality can the entire range of possibilities. It makes audible the new world that will gradually become visible, that will impose itself and regulate the order of things. By the middle of the night, people are taking a break. Some go all, some go all the way through non-stop, of course, and never stop dancing from about 10 p.m. till 8 o'clock in the morning. People are taking a rest usually, wandering around, meeting friends and new friends, lots of hugging. Not much direct sexuality because of this group mind entity that's beginning to be felt by everyone present. People tend to meet at raves, but then they get together for dates later. They don't tend, as a general rule, to get into romantic liaisons actually during the rave. It's much more a people, sex is less, sex becomes more of the group mind thing. Okay, so sunrise begins to approach. Now this is the crucial time. This is the mythological heart of the rave. When people realize that the, sun, that the sunrise is coming along, everybody gets back on the dance floor. That's a general call to get back on the dance floor. Everybody's there dancing up a storm as the music gets louder and faster and more cosmic, possibly with angelic choir samplings played over the music, even classical music samplings sometimes to help arouse a religious sense of awe as the sun gets closer and closer to coming over the horizon. And so we dance the sun up. We actually dance. The feeling as you do it is dancing the sun up. Our energy is somehow linked with the sun as it comes up, with the planet we're dancing on as it moves round. Somehow you have this feeling of connection. It's like the old pagan festivals. We're all in this together. This is our planet. Our planet is indescribably beautiful and gigantic. You get that feeling as it comes round and the sun becomes visible. We are atoms of that living goddess. Personally, I can't see a better way to help people learn a love, respect and reverence for nature than the classic open-air, all-night rave. Can you imagine what it felt like with 20,000 people going for it and actually feeling together and the power of a people together dancing the sun up? It's an awesome, it is religious, and it is life-changing. The Yoga Journal, currently in the shops, the current Yoga Journal, has an article called Sacred Raves. And here's one quote. These all-night dance marathons look like hedonistic escape, but raves may just be the defining spiritual expression of a new generation. The Reverend Matthew Fox of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco is quoted in there. He says, These kids are showing us how to pray in a new way, which is also an ancient way, 
with fewer books and more dancing. That's it. So, any drug overdone and in the wrong context is bad. In the right context, with wisdom, is, is, is good. I feel ecstasy has played a big part in it, just as LSD was a big part of the hippie thing. What I'm finding now is that the more developed drivers in England, anyway, have moved beyond the ecstasy thing. Myself, I haven't taken ecstasy for about two years. I find it too toxic. I moved over to smart drinks some of the smart drugs basically now I don't take anything but there are different phases and it can certainly help people to get that feeling at the beginning does that answer the question? yeah yeah Um, I find this in the hippie times too I I never quite understand it Um, I start from the point we need to save the planet therefore if you found something good we want to spread that we don't want to keep it in elite small groups I mean, even the underground thing, I only went underground in the 60s in order to recoup our forces, in order to go overground again and take over. That was the purpose. We went underground in the first place. We didn't go underground to stay underground. Now, the thing about this commercial aspect, if you imagine anything good that comes along is going to attract a commercial aspect of it, right? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, a little crowd gathered around because there was something happening on Friday night. Because there was a crowd gathered around the cross, a little hot dog man comes along and he sets up his hot dog stand on the edge of the crowd. Now, you don't blame Jesus for the hot dog stand. In fact, the truth of the matter is, the fact that the hot dog stand is there shows you that something real is going on in the center. You see my point? So don't be put off by the commercialism. That is bound to happen. Richard. Yes, San Francisco is very unique and I'm still trying to work out exactly in what way but my current analysis is and there may be some SF readers here who will argue but I think the San Francisco rave scene was really started by some expats from England who brought Mark Healy and a few other people who started Wicked and they brought it over here quite early on Oops. in... Um, while it was still happening in England. My own feeling is that it was it was unnaturally planted here. I'm not criticizing it, but I don't think the culture here had grown into it naturally when these expats came from England. Now, what happened was that the, the rave scene here, actually, in those first few couple of years, shot to well beyond any, any level it had ever reached in England. In fact, it, it went further even than it's still gone in England in those first two years but after about two years it burned itself out in some way and it's been on a a wave back ever since so when I arrived here nine months ago with the very definite knowledge that this thing is growing all over the planet I suddenly start meeting people who are telling me that it's dying out you know the first time I've ever come across that and I think that was because it was unnaturally transplanted here, grew too fast, was kind of force-fed in a way, and then it's been slipping back. Meanwhile, outside San Francisco, even in the greater Bay Area, the rave scene and, and it's normal, it's going through its normal progress and, and growth, and that scene is coming up just bang on schedule. So you've got these two things happening in San Francisco, one wave coming back and the, the natural thing growing up. 
So I think that explains a lot of the, the some of some of the arguments I've been having on SF Rave. Did that answer your question, Richard? Now, now I'd say it's about two years behind the English scene. It's uh, people still you, you still tend to get parties here rather than what I would call a true rave. A party is when everybody brings their favourite record and we play them one after the other. That's a party, and God bless it. There's nothing wrong with a party. A rave is more of a a, conspir- a group conspiracy to come together and use shamanic, ancient and modern technologies, you know, insistent rhythm and insistent beat kept up at a certain tempo to sort of bootstrap the entire group to the next evolutionary level. So it's more of a conscious enterprise than just a party. Therefore, you don't go from, you know, a good trance track, shift over to a sort of John Travolta disco track. You, you just don't. It's more of a, a directed enterprise. Well, yeah, that's exactly, that's, I kind of implied that when I was talking. I say the reason for that is because it hasn't collapsed here quite so far. That's the only reason. But it will, it is. You know, I mean, to some extent it's true that America keeps its citizens happy by kind of pillaging the rest of the planet, but making sure that folks at home are not having a very hard time, and that sort of works up to a point. But... Uh, this comes a point in the collapse of the system where they're just physically not capable of mollycoddling the home people anymore. And I think, especially in San Francisco, there's so much homelessness in the streets and so many young people just don't know where the next penny is coming from. I mean, it's interesting that when we opened the club here, we we charged the same as we charged in England, which is about $10 or $2 off if you're unemployed. Now, everybody in England can afford that because they've got the, the welfare state. So you've got a minimum amount of money to spend. Here, it was vastly overpriced. Now, who would have expected that in America things have to be cheaper? Strange, you know? What were you going to... Yeah. Are you talking about ecstasy? Are you talking about ecstasy specifically or... No. Not at all. Um, well, the, the main the main drug that's used at raves is ecstasy, of course, and that is an empathogen, and it does encourage hugging and, and warm feelings. My own, my own, as a psychologist, I know that it's a very mild psychedelic. It is toxic, like most psychedelics are, and more, almost any drug is. And I, but I mean, I certainly don't want to minimise the effect it's had. It's been had a very important effect on helping the birth of a culture. I'm not emphasizing it because I've seen that after a while you can... I think one of the interesting things about ecstasy is that it seems to be homeopathic. You seem to be able, having learned how to open your heart, which is what ecstasy does in a way to other people, after a while you, it happens as soon as you hear the music. You don't actually... or you can lower the amount of drug you take. I don't think that's true about LSD, but it is true about the empathogens, and it's very true about ecstasy, and that's how I did it. I just slowly reduced the amount I was taking until now I actually forget to take it. Suddenly the evening's over and I realise I haven't had anything. You know, I'm still a little surprised. But uh, definitely ecstasy, and and specifically ecstasy, has played a very large part in the whole race scene. I wouldn't want to minimise that at all. No, no, I don't think they're requisite. I think I think there are people. I know some quite hardcore ravers who've never taken ecstasy. It's not an absolute prerequisite for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Past raves. Yeah. I see rave as only the first of sort of five stages of the process, and it's kind of the 
shake all loose, get out of your head, back into your heart and body, stage one. That's all it's about. In most raves, planet-wide would probably not go beyond that first stage at this point. But the next stage is the ambient chill-out room. As I was saying, once you've opened your, or once you've deconditioned your mind by shamanic dancing, you're then very open to what comes in. And so it's really critical. At that point, you go into the ambient, the chill-out room, and it's very critical what is available at that point. We do, at Megatripolis, we have at least always three different areas, one of which is the dance floor, the other two of which are, are, are offering, you know, books and magazines with new kinds of information or information stalls or speakers. I mean, me speaking at a rave, one of my raves is quite a normal thing. We discuss these, these issues and so on. So, yeah, that, that is, I think that is the next stage in the ambient room. Then the ambient room, beyond that, the ambient room, after you've been in the ambient room a while, you sort of stumble on a door finally at the back, and that leads you into the festival. You, by now you're meeting rainbow types or whatever, this, these kinds of raves, so they tell you about festivals in the forest. And so it leads to that, so you start going to festivals in the forest. And beyond that really is the pagan world. It's really, so in other words, a young yuppie enters High street, dance club, very respectable, disco lights, enters here and is coming out here into the pagan world. So that's the overall process that's going on. You see what I'm saying? Very respectable door at the front, but leading actually to a pagan revival. And by pagan, I don't mean necessarily anti-Christian, necessarily, but much more nature-based. than a, I mean, really, the answer to this religious thing, I think, I think we've now put the two together really. The goddess we worship is the living planet we live on, and we are part of that living planet, living planet, you know. And worshiping her is a natural thing to do, and it's not—it's not some theoretical, abstract sky god we're talking about. It's actually reverencing the, the Mother Earth of which we are a part of. So, when I say pagan, I mean that. Yes, the guy at the piano. Uh, well, it was Mrs. Thatcher. I mean, that was the first stage of it, although, although the yuppies at the time didn't really quite realize that that's what it meant. But when she cracked down on those big acid house parties, when they were making $800,000 in one night putting on these massive parties just outside London, as I say, she should have supported it. She should have offered them fields to do it in. You know, this is, you know, and they should have become millionaires. Millionaire rock stars, just like Bill Graham or whatever. That should have been the pattern. She, in fact, stamped them out, emphasized the drug aspect and various other things. So that was the beginning of the radicalization process. The second important thing was when the, the ravers and the, the, the new age traveler hippie types began to connect because raves were getting cracked down on in warehouses and those kind of places and were having to go further into the countryside and, and the new age travelers with their trucks and their experience of putting on free festivals were a natural ally. And when those two came together, that's really what the Zippy thing was about. The Zippy was hippie plus techno people. The ravers, in this case, are the techno people. The hippies were the hippies. You bring those two cultures together and you've got something with energy, idealism, and some money because of yuppies, but also social idealism and all the historical roots back to the hippies. So that was the key thing. And that's what we're working on here. We took... Um, when we did the Zippy Tour of America last year, we took the rave to the, rainbow, the annual Rainbow Gathering. Do you know about the Rainbow Gatherings? We did the first rave there for them. And that, again, we're trying to connect the urban yuppie raver with the, 
the more rurally based, ecologically aware, older hippie types, and that's the key cultural thing that has to ha- fusion that has to happen. Uh-huh. This is a cla- okay, a classic argument. It's not quite what you're saying. To bring me back afterwards, if, I, if I avoided it, but this classic argument about is it live music? Is it synthetic? Here's my example. If you have if you have twenty thousand people at a rock concert and you have 20,000 people at a rave, and you're looking at a photograph, it's very easy to see which is which. With the rock and roll concert, you have 20,000 people all looking in the same direction, all basically sitting on their bums, passively, passively, 20,000 people passively consuming rehearsed entertainment by four little ant figures half a mile away on a stage who they take it on faith they're actually live people, the named band that they were promised, you know, playing live, right? So you have, at best, you have four people live, at best, and 20,000 passive consumers. Switch to the rave. Everybody's, 20,000 people, everybody's looking at each other. I would say, I would estimate that nine-tenths of the people on the dance floor don't even know who the DJ is. I would say six out of ten people don't even know where the DJ is half the time. <laughs> right? So no star system. The music, if you want to talk about live music, 20,000 people are live participating in music live. You see, as opposed to 20,000 passive. Now, I know that's not quite the point you raised, but... Yeah, really, really it's calling on, it's bringing up all forms from the past. It's, a very, it's very tribal, in fact. To my ear, the most exciting sound is kind of, it sounds very tribal and ancient. You've got, and then you mix that in with techno bleeps and so on, and you get somehow the ancient past and the future at the same time. I find that very exciting, that interface. Yeah. It's also very exciting. We, we got this in, when we went to the Rainbow Gathering last year, and we took the rave there. It was maybe a hundred miles beyond the last town, beyond the last house, to get to this rainbow gathering up in the Wyoming mountains. And then to start off a techno rave where, where electricity has never gone before, something, a real charge I got out of that. Like, you know, we're a hundred miles from the last electrical pylon, and yet here we are with UV lights. And, you know, it's very primitive stuff. You know, you're talking about two little speakers and a mixing desk and a couple of UV things doing this. Very exciting, though. You know, really front edge somehow. I don't know quite how to put it into words, but very exciting. Yes? Well, the computers play right into that. Here, here, okay, this is a perfect place to end. Uh, I think McKenna talked about this a couple of years ago, Tennis McKenna, and I used it last year as kind of what is the zippy vision of where we want to go to? What is the balance between technology and, or, and organic? Okay. Imagine a, f- a world in the future, a planet where there isn't one inch of concrete, it's covered in rainforest, completely 100% natural. A naked couple walking across a, across a clearing. Look pretty much like us, maybe a little bit hairier, but n- naked, yeah? They pause, she bends down, lifts the flower without breaking it and puts it in her mouth, thereby making an electronic connection. Menus drop down in their eyes, they plug into a sort of global computerized brain, they go into a virtual reality super city, they make their deals, they go to college, they do, you know, they have all the, whatever they're doing. We have meetings in virtual reality, but in fact, we're all living as naked apes back in the jungle, 
In other words, the whole of technology has been inhaled into virtual reality. There's no more concrete, no more physical buildings anywhere instead of being exhaled on the planet. Now, this, to me, this is a zippy vision because I love nature and I love the super city. The only thing I've got against the super city is that it's killing off the nature. So if somehow we could put that into virtual reality, into cyberspace, then we've cracked it. Also, by the way, we talk about this quite a lot. We've also cracked this thing about the sex thing. You want to hear the answer to the sex thing? The thing about are we meant to live as partners all our lives with just one woman, one person, or are we meant to play the field and explore beauty wherever we can find it? If you take this thing, we have Adam and Eve. You go off and you live naked and alone with your partner, but if whenever you like, maybe Friday nights or whenever, you put on your bodysuit and you go out hunting the most beautiful women on the planet in virtual space. And you have virtual sex with the most beautiful women in Australia and so on. But we're actually living as Adam and Eve, totally, you know, a, a monogamous relationship. So you see the vision. Sometimes we call the zippy thing uh, Holocaust aversion therapy. I mean, people... Things seem so bad that people have almost given up trying to change the planet. But if we could get them excited about where we could be and all the amazing things that are possible if we get through the current turbulence and people could really get excited about the future we could have, then it would be like Holocaust aversion. We don't want Holocaust. We want to get through. Okay, I'll have to stop now. That's the time. Thanks very much. What a mind rush that was, don't you think? Before I say anything else, I want to remind you of something Fraser said early on in his talk, and that is how critical it is that the culture has to change from a competitive one to a cooperative one. We need a cooperative meme, he said, and I couldn't agree more. Now, I know there are a lot of you ravers out there, and maybe you're thinking of yourselves by some other name right now, but by whatever names you call your gatherings, maybe you don't think of them as raves anymore, but the culture you are a part of, the culture stemming from what Fraser calls proper raves, is a form of human energy that hasn't been seen on this planet since the dominator culture swept us up into what has now become an orgy of violence. So how can a few million ravers around the world have enough of an influence to help foster a change in consciousness? Well, I don't know for sure. Got one kind of an off-the-wall idea. What about uh, take your parents to a rave night? (laughs) That's right. They don't care if they're in their 40s or their 80s. You know, even though most of the people in my generation just don't get it, we, we aren't completely stupid. And you might be surprised at how many converts you make. Many of us, you know, lived uh, through the 60s, and you might be surprised how many zippy sleepers there may be out there lurking in the boardrooms and the halls of power and science. What have you got to lose? You know, that's the question you should ask both yourself and them. Now, you may think this is a waste of time, but I know more than one formerly conservative Republican who has now turned into a a real full-fledged regular raver, actually 
many more than one. So some of your parents are real movers and shakers in their own circles. Why not take them to a proper rave and just say, I don't know how the world's going to end, but this is how it's going to begin. <laughs> you know, at this stage of the game, about the only thing we've got to lose is some dance space due to a few seniors out there doing wheelies in their wheelchairs or something. Okay, so maybe we don't need any imagery like that right now. I know you've been here a while and the hour is getting late, but I'd, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes more and put Fraser's talk in a little better context. You might have noticed that a question or two about how many people in the audience had modems and were connected to the Internet. Now, today we just assume that everybody can find their way to the net. But this talk was given in 1996. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. At the time Fraser gave this talk, the World Wide Web was only a couple of years old. You know, to really grok the depth of what Fraser just said, try this little mind experiment. You know, a mind game, if you will. And I realize that by now, only a few of you really committed psychonauts out there are still with us. And that's okay. In fact, there may be only one person who actually tries this, but that one person may be the hundredth butterfly we've talked about in the past. So, here goes. Think back to the year 1995, the year before Fraser gave this talk. And call up a few of the major events in your life back there. Even if you're only five years old, <laughs> I think this will work for everybody. Now, now think of some of the major events that year and compare them to what's going on today. They can be anything that makes you think about who you were back then and who you are today. How do you feel about things that happened back then? And how do you feel about the things that are going on today that have continued from them? For example, on January 1st of that year, the WTO was established. The Republicans took over Congress and began executing their contract on America. The Oklahoma bombing took place. O.J. Simpson got away with murder. DVD technology was just announced and Windows 95 was released. Now just to be clear, there were no iPods, no YouTube or MySpace or even Google. The web was so primitive that I, I really don't even know how we put up with it. Of course, uh, <laughs> in ten years' time, we'll be saying the same thing about today's web, I'm sure. You know, an awful lot has changed in the world since the year before Frazier gave this talk. and So now let's pretend that it's sometime in 1996, and you've just taken a seat in a large lecture hall at Stanford University, but you know then what you know now. It's, you know, it's a real mind warp, I agree, trying to pretend that 9-11 never happened and that some insane cowboy and his crime family hadn't begun to turn the USA into a fascist Christian dictatorship. You know, think back to the good old days when the big news just ahead was nothing more significant than Clinton getting blowjobs in the Oval Office. And now go back and re-listen to Fraser's talk. But this time, as you listen, try to imagine what you would have done differently in your life over these past ten years if you knew then what you know now. And now, after listening to Fraser's talk once again, and thus armed with what I believe to be the philosophical underpinnings needed to begin to rebuild human civilization on this little planet, well now, what are you going to do about it? 
You know, at this point, you may not be able to answer that question, but your destiny ultimately depends on you not just sitting on the sidelines right now. That great hold on of human consciousness has begun to stir once again, and in fact, that's really why you're here right now, to participate in the great unfolding that's begun to take place. In fact, I've been receiving a lot of interesting emails about this and other subjects we've been covering here in the salon, and it seems that all of us have been formulating more questions right now than we've been able to find answers to. So I think the answers are out there. They're just waiting to be found and shared. And So to do a little something to continue pushing these discussions along, I've uh, set up both a blog and a wiki for all of you denizens of the Psychedelic Salon to use. And you can uh, find links to them from various parts of the MatrixMasters.com website, both in the podcast section and the Planque Norte section, as well as on the front page. So please feel free to use them both whenever the mood strikes you. And I'll be saying more about these two new features of the salon in future podcasts. But if you want to be one of the early users and help set the direction of the discussions on these uh, two tools, well, now's a good time to become involved. And among other things, the uh, wiki has a section for each of the podcasts where you can expand on the information our speakers have passed along in their talks or pose your questions, for that matter. Well, I'd better bring this to an end before this file gets uh, any larger. I want to thank Fraser for uh, sending me a copy of this important presentation and even more for his lifelong dedication to searching for better ways for humans to live and interact on this planet. You know, he's not only done the intellectual heavy lifting, he's also lived as lightly on the earth as possible. That's something not many of us can say. I also want to thank my good friends Jacques, Cordell, and Wells, also known as Chateau Hayuk, for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. Thanks again, you guys. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.